previously on Flying the Line. Alpa's fight against skyjacking is taken to the next level as an unorthodox tactic is deployed to raise public awareness in the wake of continued violence. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 25, The Rise of J.J. O'Donnell. When Charlie Ruby replaced Clancy Sayan at the helm of ALPA in 1962, it was obvious that the people who made up the core of ALPA's power structure wanted somebody who was as unlike Sayan as possible, yet who would be able to maintain the vital inner continuity. Charlie Ruby fit the bill. He was a rock-solid technocrat of the old school, an enormously competent aviator, and deeply schooled in Alpa's inner workings, but never one to stir up trouble for his own advantage. Much like Clancy Sayan, Charlie Ruby faced tough internal opposition and eventually survived a recall effort in 1968. So what did the first three Alpa presidents have in common? For one thing, each of them had to fight to keep the ship afloat. Each had to fight to hold on to the presidency. And each faced detractors who persistently lashed out. The term of J.J. O'Donnell would be no different. Born in 1925, J.J. O'Donnell spent over two years in the Pacific Theater during World War II before leaving the Navy in 1946. Like Dave Bankey, J.J. O'Donnell still hankered for a military career, so he entered Air Force pilot training three years later. In 1952, he was assigned to the Air Force Cambridge Research Center called the Lincoln Laboratory. In 1956, O'Donnell was able to return to the flight deck full-time with Eastern Airlines. From the beginning of his career as an airline pilot, O'Donnell was involved in ALPA work. During his probationary period, O'Donnell interested himself in Eastern's insurance and pension programs, found several things not to his liking, and wrote a letter to Clancy Sayan saying so. Sayan liked the tone and thrust of O'Donnell's letter and invited him to participate in subsequent negotiations with airline management. In 1958, O'Donnell was elected to local office by his fellow pilots who were impressed with the quality of his work. The next year, he was elected co-pilot representative, serving two consecutive terms as a member of the board of directors. J.J. O'Donnell served continuously in ALPA office as a member of the Eastern Airlines Pilots Negotiating Committee and the ALPA Retirement and Insurance Committee where he established a reputation for hard work, accuracy, and had the ability to get along with pilots of differing views at different airlines. During the Sayan Ruby eras, which saw almost continuous bickering, O'Donnell had an almost uncanny diplomatic ability to meld the differing viewpoints of disparate airlines into a consensus, 
which attracted attention. By the late 1960s, O'Donnell had demonstrated the kind of skills usually associated with aggressive and high-priced legislative insiders. But like every president who has entered the maelstrom of Washington politics, O'Donnell found that not everything met the approval of all pilots, and those who disagreed with him, like ALPA members since the beginning, let him know about it in spades. At the same time, there were many pilots who found much in J.J. O'Donnell to admire. As it became apparent that Charlie Ruby, having reached age 62, would step down, support for O'Donnell as his successor began to develop. United Airlines pilots, who have historically been among the most steadfast supporters of incumbent ALPA presidents, from Banky to Sayan to Ruby, were surprisingly strong for O'Donnell, largely because some of them appreciated the team spirit he had displayed in troubling times. Captain Max Davis was O'Donnell's leading supporter at Eastern. In early 1969, Captain Davis began to persuade O'Donnell to formally announce his candidacy for ALPA president. While O'Donnell declined the offer, Davis refused to accept and began setting up meetings with the pilots of other airlines, creating, in effect, a J.J. O'Donnell campaign committee. After seeing the growth of grassroots support, Davis and others ultimately persuaded O'Donnell to run. As the campaign of 1970 developed, one of the surprising things was the extent of Charlie Ruby's neutrality. Unlike Clancy Sayan in 1962, who had pulled every string available to defeat his rival, Ruby wanted no lingering animosity from the presidential contest sandbagging the eventual winner. Ruby believed that the feeling of some pilots that he had been the choice of the Saiyan clique in 1962 had caused him problems later, and he wanted no similar disability hanging over the head of his successor. In June 1970, J.J. O'Donnell made his first formal campaign stops to address various local councils, including United Council 12 in Chicago. After a question-and-answer meeting with the candidate, Council 12's committee endorsed O'Donnell. Such action by the largest council at the largest airline in ALPA gave a tremendous boost to O'Donnell's candidacy. Shortly thereafter, the Eastern pilots also endorsed O'Donnell. These two endorsements triggered a rush of others. By the time the convention met in November 1970, a curious thing had begun to happen. Whenever O'Donnell appeared with an opponent to debate and answer questions, even those pilots who supported other candidates began to admit that if their choice wasn't successful, J.J. O'Donnell would do. To be acceptable as a second choice was an important political consideration in 1970 because there were 10 serious candidates in the running. Some of them would obviously be knocked off in the early balloting, so the candidate with the strongest secondary support had an important edge. J.J. O'Donnell became president after the longest balloting process in ALPA's history. From Wednesday afternoon until Saturday morning, 
the supporters of the five surviving candidates haggled, horse-traded, and plotted strategy. The Steward and Stewardesses Division, or SNS as it was known, sensing political disruption in the lengthy balloting, began to abstain after the eighth ballot count and was not a factor in O'Donnell's election. A recurrent nightmare of ALPA insiders was that the SNS division would someday come to dominate ALPA due to the fact that the jumbo jets that were slowly being introduced would increase the number of cabin attendants in relation to the number of pilots. Various rule changes were tried over the years, but obviously, if ALPA were to remain a pilot's organization, the SNS division would have to go. This was, for many people in 1970, the problem, and whoever got elected would have to deal with it. Ultimately, of course, J.J. O'Donnell would guide the SNS division on its own way to become an independent union known today as the Association of Flight Attendants. But this was not apparent yet, and the effect of the SNS vote on the outcome of the 1970 contest bothered many people. The first vote taken after the SNS withdrawal saw no change. But by the time of the ninth ballot, deals were on the table. With O'Donnell being offered the position of either first vice president or executive administrator. Unwilling to deal, the voting continued to a tenth ballot as other candidates sought to consolidate support. On the tenth ballot, there was a steady increase of support for Dick Jones of Eastern, but still no candidate had a majority. Then finally, the logjam began to break. Braniff pilots shifted their votes towards O'Donnell on the 13th ballot. On the 14th ballot, Continental and Flying Tiger went to O'Donnell, leaving him only 2,700 votes short of a majority. Sensing that he would go over the top on the 15th ballot, several airlines rushed to win the honor of casting the decisive vote. Among them were Pan Am, two large TWA councils, Piedmont, and Delta. When it was over, J.J. O'Donnell had 59% of the vote, a convincing victory, but certainly not a unanimous one. He would thus begin his presidency without even a semblance of the unanimity that had characterized the elections of his predecessors, and for that reason, he had to tread lightly. The newly elected ALPA president was about to embark into an uncertain era for the association. If ALPA were to remain a viable organization with working pilots calling the shots and running things, in fact, as well as in theory, then someone was going to have to do the thankless tasks, attend the endless committee meetings, and staff the tedious study groups. It would fall upon J.J. O'Donnell to tap those wellsprings of service among his fellow pilots, to somehow cajole them into serving ALPA's needs in a hundred ways with the time that they might have easily spent playing golf or running a business on the side. At the beginning of J.J. O'Donnell's tenure, 
Even the most casual observer could see that the airline industry was reaching full maturity. This coming of age meant that airline managers would begin to reevaluate the old formulas and patterns by which the industry had lived. Simultaneously, a new era of diminished expectations beset the airline business as it suffered from a series of unexpected economic shocks. The Arab oil embargo of 1973 seemed to trigger the faltering economic climate of the rest of the 1970s. And the deregulation of the industry at the end of the decade placed stresses on the airline business that adversely affected pilots. O'Donnell was quick to recognize these threats, and he came to office ready to pursue courses of action that he hoped would preserve jobs and minimize the impact of economic stress upon the industry and the profession. Through the first four years of his presidency, J.J. O'Donnell performed well enough so that the opposition to him was relatively muted, but the opposition was still sufficient to raise a sharp challenge to his re-election in 1974. The majority of professional airline pilots took the random criticism of O'Donnell in stride and concluded that he had acquitted himself well in the struggle against skyjacking. O'Donnell's handling of ALPA's financial and administrative problems also was well-received by most pilots, so they re-elected him to a second term. He would go on to be re-elected by acclamation at the 1978 meeting as well. Given all the bickering in ALPA's past, the majority of working pilots have a remarkable way of sticking calmly with leaders who have demonstrated ability. Of course, this was after allowing the opposition to have its full say. But these decisions were never easy or smooth. In 1980, after 10 years in office, J.J. O'Donnell would have to face the challenge of a recall movement. Like his predecessors, O'Donnell considered the recall movement a mischievous attempt to harass him, a scare tactic to put pressure on him because of their disagreement with him on several issues. One of the keys to understanding the dissidents' complaints lies in the dislocations that began to afflict the profession after the passage of the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Although O'Donnell had foreseen the problems deregulation would bring and had warned strenuously on the adverse effect deregulation would have on the established airlines once new competitors appeared, most ALPA members either weren't listening or were so committed philosophically to the conservative economic and political notions that underlay deregulation that they rejected his warnings. Two years after deregulation was enacted, the very problems O'Donnell had earlier warned against burst upon the airline piloting profession like a thunderclap. When this happened, some ALPA members began searching for a scapegoat. O'Donnell was the most convenient choice. There is no way the president can take every phone call from every dissatisfied pilot. If he did, he could never do the job. In every organization of ALPA's size and complexity, 
The chief executive has an assistant, an alter ego, who is more accessible to the rank and file. Jack Bavis, an Eastern Airlines first officer, held the position of ALPA executive administrator and filled this role for J.J. O'Donnell. O'Donnell recalled that the most difficult tasks since becoming president in 1971 was shaping the kind of efficient administrative machine that all pilots demand, which was what the board of directors had mandated as its number one priority. He also needed to maintain the reputation for integrity that ALPA had painstakingly established over the years. Success on the Washington scene demanded a delicate balance. More than any other factor, ALPA's success has depended historically upon the notion that the airline business was, at heart, a regulated public utility. An inherent part of this idea is that regulated businesses, by their very nature, ought to be immune to certain market forces. In return for good service at a fair price, government regulators would offer guaranteed profits. This idea is not new. It goes back to the era of Teddy Roosevelt. The airline business eagerly embraced the idea of government regulation. If the government expected airline managers to invest large sums to provide decent passenger service, managers reasoned that the government at least ought to offer some protection against fly-by-night upstart operators who would undercut them. Dave Bankey wholeheartedly agreed with this approach, largely because he saw the opportunity to force all airlines to pay their pilots the same wages. Historically, ALPA has always thrived when the industry was booming and faced problems when it was either stalled or shrinking. A time of prolonged stagnation in the industry would change relations between management and labor, but not necessarily to ALPA's advantage. Nothing indicates these reduced circumstances better than the diminishing opportunities for pilot employment and the frozen promotion lists that characterized most of the 1970s. Although the scarcity of jobs and a massive pool of pilots aching to have them were hardly new problems, the dimensions were quite unlike anything any ALPA president had ever faced before. Historically, management has used every instance of stress, no matter how fleeting, as an excuse to cut the size of its pilot workforce while demanding increased productivity from those still working. As such, the airline pilots in the O'Donnell era would live in an age of diminishing prospects, made all the more distressing by an explosion of technology that promised, but never quite seemed to deliver, a better future. A professional airline pilot's working environment in the pure physical sense, would change only marginally during the O'Donnell decade, compared to the abrupt changes that Banky had to cope with caused by the coming of instrument flying, the problems of crew complement that Clancy Sayan faced, or the painful jet transition that was Charlie Ruby's to bear. But O'Donnell would encounter problems that were more subtle and more menacing than his predecessors had faced. 
The availability of radar and increasingly automated flight deck systems promised to make life easier for pilots, but actually, they added new and formidable complications that were difficult to explain to the public. In the past, ALPA presidents had always been able to rely, to some sort of extent, on a sympathetic public. Not so with J.J. O'Donnell. In the 1970s, troublesome, repeated strikes at Northwest Airlines, Continental, and Wien Air Alaska would demonstrate that the limits of the old system had been reached. Under J.J. O'Donnell, ALBA would have to cling to the status quo, tenaciously resisting a variety of corporate efforts to redress the balance in management's favor. In this environment, O'Donnell pressed to preserve jobs, even in the face of objections from a few very senior members. The philosophy of sharing the injury during downturns was born. In a sense, things had come full circle by 1981, with J.J. O'Donnell once more moving ALPA back into the mainstream of organized labor, where Dave Bankey first placed it in 1931. For J.J. O'Donnell and the future of ALPA, a close association with organized labor had become a matter of life and death by the late 1970s. Few modern airline pilots seem to understand that today's high salaries and favorable working conditions would not exist without the concept of the airline business as a regulated public utility. Put simply, the status of the airlines as a government-supervised public utility with guaranteed levels of profit meant that management could pass along pilot salaries, no matter how high, to the traveling public. More than any other professional occupational group, modern airline pilots owe their current status to the traditional alliance between labor and government regulators. Perhaps it is a measure of ALPA's success as a trade union that it has allowed its members an income in the same bracket as the country club set. It was natural that the values of the people with whom pilots associated would rub off, even to the extent that many pilots seem embarrassed to admit their trade union affiliation. The hardline old-timers who made the lifestyle of today's airline pilots possible knew that their dependence on the labor movement was complete. But by the Ruby era, at least, modern pilots had begun to believe that they were professionals in the traditional sense of the word and that they did not need a labor union. The decline of professional airline piloting as a privileged occupation may have been the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. From the beginning, the threat to airlines with established labor contracts was apparent, and J.J. O'Donnell was in the forefront of those who warned that deregulation of the airline industry would not work. The limited nature of the environment in which commercial air transportation functions means that the free market is limited. There are only so many gates, at a fixed number of airports, 
connected by a finite airspace. Somebody is going to have to say who flies where and when, if not necessarily how, and with what kind of pilot. In short, the very nature of the airline industry demands regulation by somebody other than a vague and impersonal force called the free market. In the wake of deregulation and the economic decline, J.J. O'Donnell faced many problems. O'Donnell knew instinctively that the typical airline pilot of his era was riding for a fall. And he also knew that no amount of skillful maneuvering on Capitol Hill could disguise Alpa's reputation as a gold-plated union, whose members were little concerned with issues of vital interest to ordinary trade unionists. The typical liberal also knew full well that the average Alpa member was not only unlikely to vote for him, but was usually an ardent supporter of conservative politicians. It is thought that this belief governed the work of the late Senator Ed Kennedy, whose senatorial committee gave birth to the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978. Put simply, congressional liberals allowed the free market program for air transportation, long supported by their conservative opposition, to become law. Those who would ultimately be most affected and most damaged by that free market solution, namely the nation's professional airline pilots, were ideological conservatives in their voting habits, thus making it easy for traditional liberals to abandon them. In short, the nature of the ALPA membership by its mid-century point had made J.J. O'Donnell's leadership task almost impossible. O'Donnell had wrung just about everything out of the industry that a traditional approach could muster. He realized early that the changing nature of the air transport industry made it absolutely essential for ALPA to reestablish its reputation as a good neighbor in the community of organized labor, and that politically, ALPA was going to have to adopt a flexible, pragmatic approach. The Board of Directors meeting in November 1980 was faced with several issues that posed serious threats to the piloting profession. As its initial course of action to combat these problems, the board directed that a nationwide shutdown be called through a suspension of service, or SOS, to ensure that regulatory agencies would listen and respond to the concerns of airline pilots. Dubbed Operation USA, the real purpose of the SOS program was to assess just how firm the commitment of modern airline pilots was and whether they were sufficiently resolved to stand firm in areas vital to their professional well-being. In short, ALPA's leaders had to know for sure if the membership would support the directives laid down by their representatives, the Board of Directors. Under the terms of Operation USA, ALPA would shut down the nation's airlines for a short period if it did not get a satisfactory resolution to the major issues confronting airline pilots, which included primarily a plea for reform of the aircraft certification process and a fair resolution to the crew complement issue. The program, 
carefully structured to give O'Donnell the opportunity to work out a compromise with the incoming Reagan administration, suffered at first from a lack of grassroots support. O'Donnell was fully aware that this course of action justifiably scared many ALPA members. But from the volume and type of complaints received in Washington, it was apparent that many pilot groups did little to inform their members about the action initiated at the November board meeting. The SOS was essentially a strike, a special kind, that would require an expertise in the ancient art of withdrawing from service. But ALPA had little experience in the grubby business of striking lately. During the O'Donnell era, strikes had not figured prominently as an ALPA weapon. Only at Northwest, which endured nasty strikes three times during the decade, was there anything like a pool of pilots who had sufficient knowledge to carry off the organizational and administrative tasks an SOS would require. For that reason, O'Donnell strategically told Northwest pilots about Operation USA structures, where their recent experience with shutting down an airline could be put to practical use. If the SOS scheduled for early 1981 had actually happened, the nation's airlines would have been crippled. For a day or so, nobody in this country would have been sure of getting anywhere. Out of this new awareness of their political power, a rising sense of self-confidence began to spread among those who were committed to Operation USA. As the March 1st SOS commencement date approached, O'Donnell met continuously with representatives of the new Reagan administration. But with no response from the Reagan team to ALPA's request for a special committee to review the crew complement question at the next generation of commercial airliners, O'Donnell had to continue the SOS threat. The clock was running. The supporters and believers of Operation USA continued their vigil. Two weeks before the deadline, the Secretary of Transportation appeared before a special session of ALPA's executive board and announced that the administration would establish a presidential task force, as sought by ALPA's board of directors. ALPA agreed to abide by the task force's findings and to stand down on the SOS. The ALPA members who had worked so persistently on Operation USA were disappointed. For the first time in the professional careers of most of them, the old ALPA idea of unity across company lines had become something tangible, and they were anxious to test their mettle, to see if they could carry off an action that rivaled in gutsiness to those of ALPA's founders. From J.J. O'Donnell's point of view, the SOS was a mixed bag. The latent spirit of unity that Operation USA brought convinced him that when professional airline pilots could be convinced to see their own interests clearly, they were still capable of taking great risks to defend them. To O'Donnell, Operation USA was the card he could play if all else failed. 
The Reagan administration would eventually appoint a commission to study ALPA's crew complement grievance and subsequently act on the other issues raised by the pilots. Most ALPA members were sick of what they regarded as harassment of airline pilots by the Federal Aviation Administration, and they also wanted to expose failures in the FAA's aircraft certification process. But first and foremost, ALPA wanted an objective evaluation of the crew complement question. Ultimately, ALPA won an official role for line pilot participation in the certification of a new aircraft and the monitoring of the process during its useful life. O'Donnell has succeeded where every previous ALPA president had failed. But in 1981, 50 years after its foundation in struggle, sacrifice, and tragedy, the airline pilots of America were still facing the fundamental questions their forebears faced in 1931. Would they be able to stand up and fight the good fight, always keeping in mind that justice and virtue do not always prevail? Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 25 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. This was the final episode based on Flying the Line, Volume 1. Coming soon, the continuation of the story of the Airline Pilots Association. As the 1980s begin, professional airline pilots in the industry face increasing challenges, including deregulation, more battles with airline management, and another blow to the union in the form of a decertification. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Stay tuned for more episodes of Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright, ALPA, 2021. All rights reserved. <laughs>